Good evening. Welcome. How many people have, how many people here are new to New York Insight? One person? Just kind of, sort of? Anyone else? Wow, that's impressive. So, as you know, we start all of these sittings uh, by introducing ourselves. My name is Gina Sharp, and it's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. And so I'm going to give you a few minutes to greet each other. So we sit for about 45 minutes, um, and since the beginners are in the other room, we sit without instructions. Is there anyone here, even though you've practiced for a while, that would like instructions? My job's going to be really easy tonight, (laughs) I can tell. I'm just going to have you all teach me. Okay, so let's sit together.
So even though I'm not going to give instructions through the sitting, I'd like to invite you, if you feel it would be helpful or supportive or appropriate for you, to reflect first on your intention for being here in some ways so that our being here is not a kind of automatic thing, but one that becomes intentional and our practice becomes aligned with our intention. So the people who are uh, new to the room, who've been practicing with 7A, like to extend a warm welcome into, um, into the whole group, into this group. And uh, 7A is here, so if you, ask, if you want to ask her any questions, you certainly can. <laughs> Um, so, for those of you whom I've not met, my name is uh, Gina Sharp, and I'm glad you're here. We um, spend the rest of the evening really writing a Dharma talk together. Um, by your questions and your comments, uh, we, we weave together reflections on the Dharma. And so if you're, if you're new to meditation, what we talk about really is the teachings that underpin uh, the, the practice of meditation or from which the practice of meditation has, has emerged. There are many practices that we do um, here at New York Insight. Our practices uh, essentially 
um, based on uh, one tradition in Buddhism, of which there are several. And uh, the teachings have, of all of these traditions, have some basic teachings of the Buddha in common. Uh, one of those teachings is the teaching that if we are to practice wholeheartedly and receive the benefits of the practice, of the practice of meditation, which is part of a path that is um, meditation, wisdom, and integrity or ethics, that we must learn to open our hearts. And so at New York Insight, one of the ways in which we encourage that is to try to um, have as many events as possible that uh, require no admission fee, no charge, no, um, no exchange, no economy of exchange. And rather, we rely on an economy of gifts so that uh, we together learn how to open our hearts in a generous way. And that means that uh, the teachers who come to New York Insight and teach, including myself, uh, teach without uh, New York Insight paying us anything. And um, that New York Insight as a community essentially is dedicated to a practice of generosity in opening our doors so that everyone who comes, regardless of their economic circumstances, are not turned away. So what that means is that we practice generosity together, that we we see that it's a, in in a way, it's a countercultural kind of practice in that we live very much in an economy of exchange where you know, I, give, I give you this good and you give me a certain amount of money which I ask you for. And uh, we're countercultural in the sense that we open the teachings to anyone who wants to hear them. And we hope and um, encourage you to support New York Insight and its teachers by giving donations when you come, or by uh, volunteering, or by uh, becoming a member of New York Insight to uh, support it in an ongoing way. So if you feel that these teachings are of benefit to you, and you see the way in which they have benefited your life, and you wish that to enter the stream of generosity that basically you're sitting in right now because without the generosity of all of the beings who have passed through these doors, whether they're teachers or students or people who volunteered or served on our board or came and helped us to clean the center or just a myriad number of different ways of beautiful, beautiful giving and generosity... If you wish to enter that stream, you're invited to, um, to make a, a donation in one of the two boxes that are 
at the ones inside the door and ones outside of the door. And whatever you give will be shared equally by uh, New York Insight and myself. And I also encourage you, uh, in addition to giving tonight, if you are so moved, to also consider uh, being of service to the community in whatever way you can. I'm sure you have lots of talents that we could um, uh, benefit from. So thank you. So just to start our conversation, our inquiry tonight on the Dharma, I brought you a poem by Wendell Berry, who's one of my very favorite contemporary poets. He says, as soon as I felt a necessity to learn about the non-human world, I wished to learn about it in a hurry. And then I began to learn perhaps the most important lesson that that nature had to teach me that I could not learn about her in a hurry. The most important learning, that of experience, can be neither summoned nor sought out. The most worthy knowledge cannot be acquired by what is known as study, though that is necessary and has its use. It comes in its own good time and in its own way to the person who will go where it lives and wait and be ready. What is to be known is always there. When it reveals itself to you or when you come upon it, it is by chance. The only condition is your being here and being watchful. It actually was by accident that I saw that poem again tonight. So it kind of fulfilled his prediction. Um, And when I saw it, I was... open to bringing a poem tonight. And when I saw it, I thought, oh, that's it. Um, because in my, in my own practice these days, I'm very taken with the notion that um, we can study and study and study and study, and that is certainly useful. And yet, what, what, what we really learn by is well the study kind of points to points us to where to look it doesn't really point us to what to know do you know what i mean and that there's a pointing to where we can look if we want to learn and that looking is really it's internal and it's external it's in the heart but it's also in the world in which we live and to which we are so inexorably and inextricably connected. And that our knowledge is really not knowledge of the heart, that the true knowledge that we gain as we go through life and we have all of the experiences that we have 
pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. That it's that experience that is born from uh, wisdom, the wisdom that comes from being willing to be here and to be watchful, to really not miss too much, to be so alert and so aware that the wisdom that is to be gained is not missed. So our teachings, the teachings that, the beautiful teachings that have been passed down from the Buddha over these 26 or 2700 years are really a pointing to. They're not ultimate knowledge. They're appointing us back into the heart and back into that connection to the external world so that we learn by this presence and by this watching, this willingness to see, we learn what we need to learn. And our wisdom springs from that. It doesn't so much spring from knowing what sutta the Buddha said what, right? Or um, learning all the lists of, you know, the Four Noble Truths and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness and the Five Spiritual Faculties and the Five Powers and the Seven Factors of Awakening and the Ten Paramis and, you know, the Eightfold Path. And, you know, so we can know all of that. And, it, and they're, they're brilliant in teachings. They really are brilliant teachings. And yet what's really helpful is the integration of all of that wisdom. The Buddha, as, as a teacher of mine, said the Buddha um, had his own enlightenment 2,700 years ago. Now you see if you can have yours. Right? So we're not reliant so much on somebody else's awakening, even if it's the Buddha's. But we have uh, ultimate faith and ultimate confidence in our own potential, our own potential for awakening. And that gives us the determination and the confidence to continue to be present with an open heart, with compassion and to trust the wisdom that comes from that. If we're living according to the path of wisdom and meditation and integrity, then we can really begin to trust deeply the intuitive process, the wisdom that comes into our own being. You know, we have to look at it with a little skepticism sometimes, right? But, but essentially, it's, um, it's trustworthy. It's trustworthy if we really um, are determined and persevering and patient in our own practice. So I'm very... Uh, open to questions or comments and for us to exchange some inquiry tonight. So just know that if you have a question that it's not too basic or not too elementary or not too silly that 
probably if you have a, a question, there are several other people in the room who have the same question. So by being the brave one who asks the question, you'll be doing a great service. Yes. Could you tell me your name? Hello, hello I'm Jesse. Hi, Jesse. This is a. Uh, so I find so much value in the teachings and especially in the practice, which is what first drew me into New York Insight. Um, this is slightly of a kind of like a skeptical question. Um, so, and I, I really appreciate your your response. So. Oftentimes, I hear that, particularly within this tradition of Buddhism, um, people will make reference to current neuroscience um, and how it is now like revealing many of the or validating many of like the principles of Buddhism. Um, and so, these are two personal interests of mine: um, neuroscience and Buddhism. And during one of the last um, talks that I was at on a Tuesday night, I heard a teacher um, say that the, the teachings of the Buddha kind of assert that um, the true um, nature of the mind is um, compassion. I think it was love and compassion. Um, and it was interesting to me to hear that because as someone who's kind of familiar with... Um, Neuroscience, a lot of the, the discipline kind of teaches that the basis is in of, of, the, of the brain is a result of competition, right? Through our evolution as human animals. Through. A, a result of competition as right, human animals having been the result of evolution. Um, so that was just like an interesting kind of contradiction between these two disciplines that I was wondering what you know, your response might be. Because, yeah, I think people are always wondering what the true nature of humanity is. Is it that we're self-interested competitive actors or is it that we're supposedly these, com you know, compassionate, loving beings? What is your experience? Um, I, I think, so, I think that we... You know, I've experienced, right, like both, I've observed and personally experienced, right, both inclinations. I feel like I'm rather inclined to be, I joke, I joke with my friends, like, oh, when I first meet people for the first time, my inclination is to have like, a great affinity for them, right? That's part of my personality. But when it comes down to it, um, I recognize that, yeah, humans have to, are responsible for sustaining ourselves. Um, and even if we want to, be generous and have a lot to give, um, it seems like you need to have more so that you can give more. So <laughs> it's, this, uh, um, it's this kind of, I don't know, odd um, circular conflict that So I when think you say more, what do you mean more of what? Um, whatever it is that you want to give. 
-huh. time, money, energy, wisdom. How do you get more time? Oh, I guess that's like the one thing that is finite, but you can, right, we get to decide is how much time we Time need. is finite? Is that what you just said? Or, or our time living on this earth is ah. finite. Mm -hmm. um, but the amount of time that we Is it, to, actually? Well, I mean, as far as, I guess it's like, you know, the consensus, the scientific consensus, the current, ah. the current scientific consensus. Okay. And like my current buy-in, I suppose, is um, we have like one, one life to live. Um, uh -huh. Do we? <laughs> um, fair question. Um, like I said, that's, you know, at any given time, we, we kind of choose to, I believe we really kind of choose to believe what we believe, okay. right? So I'd like to come back to my original question is like, what is your experience of your own nature? Letting go of any idea about your personality. So for instance, when you sit in practice and uh, nobody's looking, right? And there's, there's no uh, social interaction that you're compelled to do. And the mind becomes somewhat quiet and the heart feels still and somewhat peaceful. It happens from time to time. What do you notice about your own heart? What do you notice about your own nature? It's difficult because I feel like it's always changing, right? Our state is in a constant state of flux and evolution in of itself, like our, you know, our emotion, social emotional development. Our what? Our social emotional development, our state of being. No, I don't want to, do, I don't want to go there. Okay. I want to go to your experience mm -hmm. of yourself to the extent that you have a self. When, you, when the mind gets quiet and the heart becomes somewhat still, and the body doesn't feel agitated or too tired. And there is some capacity or some ability to simply know what it feels like to be you. What does it feel like? I think it feels just kind of quiet and indifferent and in existence. Indifferent? Yeah. Did you say indifferent? Yeah. What do you mean by that? Um, I guess there's there's no judging. There's no there's no conscious. There's no like uh, thoughts or feelings or feeling tones that I'm aware of. I suppose. Um, what are you aware some, of when that experience arrives? I think just um, existing in the present moment. Mm -hmm. um, and what does that feel like? It feels very peaceful. Mm -hmm. um, and very simple. Mm -hmm. And very kind of free-floating as another... Um, entity amongst everything else in the universe. Mm -hmm. 
Does that feel kind? I don't know if I'd say it feels kind. Okay. It doesn't feel harsh or not kind. Okay. okay. Does it feel um, generous? I think it just feels like it's uh, as much of everything as it is something that has anything to give, I suppose. If I'm like trying to, trying to like think of what that feels like, it's, it's okay. difficult, you don't it's really hard. You don't have to shoehorn yourself into my questions. I'm just, I'm trying to bring something out so that you, not necessarily to um, have an answer to what you asked, but really to point you back to your own experience. So, because a question like, what is our true nature can become something that's totally conceptual, right? And then you and I can debate about whether our true nature is one of kindness and generosity and love and compassion and wisdom, or our true nature is hateful and competitive and wanting to get you know, as much as we can and et cetera, et cetera. We could argue that forever and we could, ne we could never come to a f definitive answer. And, and I think part of it is that we really, what, what is true for us is what we can observe in our own experience with respect to this question. So, so what I'm hoping to come to with you is some degree of realization that you can actually investigate this for yourself. That we can let go of you so that when the mind is still and quiet and the heart is somewhat peaceful, we can actually pay attention to how we are in that very moment. Because how we are in that very moment is stripped of concept. It's stripped of all of the learning that we've had, you know, the book learning and what people have told us and what we're supposed to believe and all of that. And we're really thrown back on our own experience of who we are. And so in, in many ways, the meditation experience is pointing us to that so that it doesn't matter what a teacher says about what our true nature is. Because whatever I assert, it's okay for you to question and to say, well, I don't know, that's not my experience. And, but to be careful that you're, it's, it's kind of tricky and kind of edgy because our experience can be so clouded our understanding of our experience can be so clouded by our conceptual knowledge, by our prejudices, by our biases, by our culture, by our society, by our um, learning from teachers, siblings, parents, you know, just you name all of the conditions 
of which we are not independent. We're not independent. And really, the, f the freedom that's being taught in this practice is a, pra is, a, is a freedom from all of those conditions. And we can glimpse it from time to time. So, it's th so we think sometimes of freedom to, but the practice that we're doing is really freedom from. And it's freedom from all of the ideas that we have about who we are and a freedom from all of the ways in which we have built up identities that we then have to protect and defend. And when we're sitting in meditation, much of that falls away quite naturally. And we begin to come back to uh, our true nature, if we want to call it that. You know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of different language that can be used to describe it, but that's, since that's your language, I'll use that. So we can come back to our true nature by seeing much of that drop away. And we can't cast it away. It's not, it's not that kind of thing. But it does fall away the more still the mind and heart get. So that the meditation practice is really a, um, an encouragement and an invitation to allow that to happen rather than because we can't make it happen but we can, we can create the circumstances or the conditions in which it, they can fall away. And we begin to know for ourselves who we truly are, right? So I'm inviting you into an investigation rather than trying to give you a definitive answer because that definitive answer would only be based on my own experience and not necessarily true for you in this moment. So it would just become conceptual. Thank you. You're very welcome. Hi. Hi. Um, Your name? My name is Ben. Ben. Hi, Ben. Hi, Gina. Thanks. Um, uh, so I have a practice, I would say, I um, uh, sit, you know, for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, maybe half of the days or maybe more. Um, but I find that I, um, the times when I uh, uh, come sort of more uh, frequently to, um, to, to, to Sangha, to, to these things, or when I find myself sort of actually listening to, to, to Dharma talks, um, uh, are sort of when you know the way that like cowboys in the old in the West used to go to church, like when they're low or you know when there's a certain amount of kind of despair. Or, um, uh, and and I think that um, the comfort I is that I, when cowboys used to go to church. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that insight, but. Uh, <laughs> um, how do you know that? I, I think it's I'm just, just curious, I just I just sort of read between the lines, I guess. I think oh, it was okay. a guess. Um, you kind of came to your own conclusions yeah. about it. Okay. Okay. Great. Uh, so, so I think there's 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 a certain amount of comfort I get in um and and just seems natural in terms of using the practice to uh explore a particularly a particular unpleasant feeling and and um 
deconstruct it and say, okay, that's not so bad. Um, I'm still here and I'm breathing. And uh, there are all these people who are uh, going through their own travails, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I guess sort of where um, that leaves me is in a bit of a of a trap in terms of the the, um, the the sort of causes in my life that are um, contributing to to these you know intermittent feelings of despair, not um, not having the the practice doesn't hasn't caused me yet to act on those or improve those um, in a way that I can see as sort of I mean it's it hasn't been that long and I I don't blame the practice but but just uh, um, I, I guess what I'm wondering is 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 um, I, I've started, and mostly just through listening to Dharma talks, have um, come up with the idea that, that there is um, a tradition or, or a, um, a, a sort of logical result, um, an observed result of, of action from meditation, sort of action towards you know, undesirable conditions or, or, or um, uh, things that are, that are causing um, the self or others harm. Um, and I think you know, one of the routes to that that I've been able to glean is, is, is meta practice, for example, um, and sort of loving oneself um, uh, and, and sort of all beings kind of equally and, and, and being able to um, determine what's best to do out of that. Um, but I, I guess in terms of the, the insight that leads to action, um, is, that, is that sort of a, um, just a um, Sort of a, a, a discipline or or, or, a, or a statement of determination that that you know maybe you go to retreat one time and you you, you decide all right I'm going to um, get to the next level in terms of my practice or is it um, um, am I going about it in the wrong way have I just not done it practiced enough or or sort of densely enough what, I, I guess what in in your experience how how is that kind of um, uh, impetus to like personal action, personal transformation that's come out of meditation. How, how have you f you found that? Has that been through an act of discipline or through an act of um, sort of eureka in the middle of a sitting or or, or whatever hmm. it is? Hmm. I I think I understand your question, so I'm going to repeat it. And, and ju I'm just I'm going to summarize it. So yeah, sorry, I'm not going to repeat it. I'm going to summarize it. <laughs> So I think that you're asking what the modality is through which one um, perseveres in practice so that it has a desired, desirable, not necessarily desired, but desirable result. So that, um, because it, it sounds to me as if you're saying, and I, please correct me if I'm wrong, that you, f you feel some despair about your practice, that it doesn't feel as if it's leading, it's onward leading to uh, perhaps the kind of transformation that you had hoped. Is yeah, I guess I, I find it as a, it, that's pretty much, I guess I find it sort of as more of a salve for despair than a um, source of sort of transformational Got movement it. at this point. Yeah. Okay. And so you're asking what my experience is with, with that. And it's, it's a great question, by the way. Um, so it's both, right? So in the present moment, when we sit, um, often 
there's a there's a, a you know if we're sitting correctly and um, giving it enough time. Uh, usually, there's a you know and, and if I go back to Jesse's question, you know there the, the neuroscientists and neurobiologists have ways of measuring our blood pressure and you know and uh, our brain waves and all of that to see that there is some peacefulness that comes in some uh, way in which the, the body and the mind de-stress from meditation. And that certainly, um, it's not to be sniff, sniffed at because, um, you know, we, we live in a world that's very stressful and seems to be um, heating up more and more, in, you know, physically as well as spiritually. Um, so, so that's one advantage or one benefit that comes from practice. And I think you're addressing yourself to the deeper benefits that reputedly come from practice also and, and how to, um, to go about that. So have you been on retreat? Uh, yeah, once a long time ago, not, once not recently. A long time yeah. ago. Okay. So there, there, there are a couple of ways that practice um, begins to ma- that our practice manifests uh, this transformation that the Buddha promised. And uh, for me, it has been dependent on establishing certain conditions in my life, so that. The first of all, the path is really it's seriously a path, right? So when we talk about meditation and ethics and wisdom, we're really talking about establishing a practice of meditation that is more than um, fortuitous or adventitious, that it's actually a practice that we enter into with some degree of commitment and it's like everything it's like it's not different from other disciplines or whether they're physical or spiritual or mental or emotional we all we've all learned from our own experience that if we want to develop our bodies that going to the gym in January and then the next time we visit is in April that we don't see a whole hell of a lot of change, right? And, or that if we undertake, say, a course of psychotherapy, that we go somewhat regularly. And so meditation is not a different, the discipline of meditation is pretty much the same, that nothing really comes from uh, an inconsistent dedication or determination, but it comes from a regular kind of consistent, constant uh, willingness and commitment to be present. So if we're going to the gym, you know, and we look after one session and we say, yeah, that was, I really enjoyed it while it was happening, but nothing's really happened to my body, so now I think I'm going to go dancing, right? You're going to use a different set of muscles. Or if you um, do it a few times and you like what you see and then you start to, um, you know, 
go back to an old diet or uh, go back to bad habits that you had before, you'll notice that although you're getting some benefit from the exercise, that you know, the other bad habits are, count- are countervailing forces to the discipline. So it being a path of meditation and ethics and wisdom means that we enter into some uh, willingness to hear the teachings and not just to say, oh, those are really great. Oh, that sounds really good. Oh, you're so poetic. But really to say, hmm, uh, that sounds like something that I don't really do in my life and I'm going to try it and see what happens. And then you, you try, you, you put the, pra- the, the teachings into practice and you observe, just like Wendell Berry said, you, your willingness to be present, to be here, and to watch what happens is really important. So that you notice when you go off, you know, when, as Jesse was asking about our, nat- our, our nature, I would say more, you know, when we go off from being kind, what does it feel like? Can we be present for that? just as much as we're present for the moments when we are kind, when we are generous, when we are loving, when we are compassionate. What does that feel like? And then we begin to see, oh, this feels really wholesome and skillful when we're being kind. It feels really wholesome and skillful, and I see the results of it when we relate to someone with compassion. Or we look at our meditation and we notice the days that we don't meditate. How reactive are we? What do we do when somebody crosses us or says something that we don't like? What's our, what, how short is our fuse? Or how long is our patience? Depending on whether we've practiced or we haven't practiced. So that, the, so that we, we keep getting a feedback loop on what we're doing, whether we're not practicing or we're practicing, we're practicing, right? So even if we're not sitting um, uh, formally in the morning, during the whole day, can you be present for what your mind is like, for what your heart is like, for how your body feels, just as you would for, with, with physical exercise? And in my experience, actually going on silent retreats and really learning the skill of meditation was indispensable. Now, maybe for some people it's not, or, or their lives don't allow for um, that kind of sustained um, discipline right now. But there are a lot of different ways of maintaining it. So you can maintain it um, by coming to sit regularly with other people, because you, you may notice that if you sit for 45 minutes, you say, I'm going to sit for 45 minutes with this group of people. Most people stay, right? But if you stay, if, you, if at home you say, today I'm going to sit for 45 minutes. <laughs> God, I needed to make that phone call. Let me go make that phone call, right? So, so being with a group of people is a really added um, help. And, of course, the Buddha talked a lot about companionship. You know, that the companions that we choose have everything to do with the standards that we establish in our lives, right? 
that if we're with people who like to do this, that, or the other thing, we like to do this, that, or the other thing, right? And that becomes a kind of normal way of being. So, yes, discipline. Discipline, and so first the intention and the commitment. And if you're suffering enough, that usually gives you a lot of impetus for a commitment, right? Because if we're suffering enough, we say, I've got to get out of this suffering. I need to do something else other than what I'm doing. You know, it's uh, Einstein's uh, uh, quote where he says, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, trying, hoping to get a different result, right? So that we stop the insanity and we see, oh, I'm suffering. I, I need to do something different. So we seek out companions. We seek out places where we can learn the skill. And it's a skill. And it's a skill that develops like every other skill. That the more you do it, the easier or the, the short... For me, it's been the shorter amount of time to really drop into that place of stillness and quiet. It doesn't mean my mind shuts down. You know, the mind's still doing what it does but I'm not so caught by it. And, um, and to not despair because you're not getting results that you think you should be getting, but rather to notice the places that you open, that you are opening. We're all opening like flowers. When we practice, it's inevitable. It, you cannot avoid it. The practice of meditation, when done with some consistency and some constancy, some discipline, has an inexorable effect. So the heart starts to open. The mind starts to clarify. All by itself. We, we, don't, we self-liberate. There's nothing we have to do other than the practice. And the despair is extra. The despair of, oh, I'm not getting there, I'm not doing this, that's all extra. That's, that's a kind of um, selfing of, and, and a kind of um, misguided um, idea that there's a timetable. There's no timetable. Over years over years, and it's not a practice where you're going to get it within X number of months or years, and then you're done. It's, it's a lifetime. So relax, right? Because life is just going to happen anyway. And you may as well be meditating while it's happening, right? You may as well be calm and peaceful while it's, while it's happening. You may as well see clearly while it's happening. You may as well be loving and kind and generous rather than mean and... and uh, contracted while it's happening, right? It's going to make you much happier to be kind and compassionate and loving. So, um, so I guess all of that is a way of saying relax. Relax. We've spent years, we've spent our whole lives developing these bad habits, Right? And I, which reminds me of a story a teacher of mine talked about when she encountered in the 1950s her first Zen master. 
and he came to New York. It was Maizumi Roshi, and um, she went to see him, and she had no idea what one said to a Zen master, right? And she'd been in therapy. So she said to him, she, she, he walked in, and something about him was so loving and so kind that she just started doing her therapy thing. And she told him her whole life story, and she started weeping and sobbing and, you know, saying, and then this happened, and then this happened, and oh, my God, and I, oh, and I can't stand it. And, you know, she just did her whole thing. And he sat there, and, of course, he only spoke Japanese at the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so the, the interpreter was, you know, speaking really fast, trying to keep up with her. And it, she stopped, and she was sobbing, and um, the interpreter was telling Maizumi Roshi what she had said, and he sat there, and he nodded, and he nodded. And he said, oh, my, many bad habits. <laughs> that's, what, that's all it is. It's a lot of very bad habits, right? And so habits, they may not be easy to change, but they're totally changeable. Totally changeable. As Jesse was talking about the neuroscientists, you know, are brains are plastic, right? So they shift and change, and we wear neural, new neural pathways into the brain with every thought. Or we, dig, or we dig the old ones deeper, right, if we keep having the same thought. So despair is extra. Just do it. Just do it. And check in in mm, 10 years or so. <laughs> See if there's a change. Little change, as the Dalai Lama would say. He said, I've been, I've been doing this now for, this is a, quite a while ago, 25 years, and I notice little change. <laughs> and, and, you know, and uh, um, Pablo Casals was at 93 still practicing for three hours a day. And people said to him, Master, you're so accomplished. Why are you still practicing three hours a day at your age? And he said, well, I have noticed a little change. Hi, I'm Diana. Diana. Um, I'm going to take the distressed cowboy scenario. And uh, I have, in, in the last month or so, been exploring my practice as a way of dealing with grief and loss um, and, and being with the sadness instead of running and instead of, um, you know, that, that conditioning of, well, just, just work. Just keep yourself busy, it'll pass, just work. And I've, I've been um, really working on being present with, with everything as it comes up. Um, and what has been most interesting for me, this is probably my biggest loss in 
my life so far. It was my, my grandmother, who was my only grandparent. And, um, and at one moment, I, I realized that so much of the grief was actually very selfish, that it was really so much about um, myself and what this person represented of myself. It wasn't so much, oh, sorry. It wasn't so much about a physical death of, of this person. Um, she'd been very ill. I could logically say it's for the better. She's out of that pain. Um, but I realized there was so much more about what she meant for my sense of self and for my, um, my ego, <laughs> you know, that, and for me, because it, it was my grandmother, she was my root, and, and I'm from Mexico, I was born in Mexico, but she was my, my living root, still in Mexico, and, um, and so I just had this, this moment of really realizing that I was grieving more the sense of self that I attached to her than actu the actual body that was no longer on this earth. Um, and I think I just, I didn't know what to do with that realization. I didn't know what to do with realizing that, I guess I was just kind of face to face with the rawness of, of that ego, <laughs> you know, and, and, um, and the sadness that comes with it. So I'm not sure what my question is exactly, but um, I think I'm, it's just what I've been mulling in my head, and I'm just wondering what do we do, what do we do in those moments when we are just so face to face with that rawness of that ego and what it does to us. What was your experience of that? It was actually relief. I felt when I realized, the, the moment that I realized, um, oh, it's me, I'm, I'm grieving myself, I'm grieving my sense of identity. I mean, it was so much about my sense of being connected to this little part of the earth that my grandmother connected me to. Um, I did feel a little less sad. In, in, oh, and then once I started thinking about it, then I got a little more sad. And I had to stay with that. Um, but I did feel just a relief of um, maybe a little less attached to, to that grieving process, to, to the process of saying, oh, this person that was in my life is dead and is no longer here. And, and just realizing and being able to explore what that sadness actually was for me and what, where it was coming from. Um, it was freeing. It was freeing. It's, I'm not by any means <laughs> through it at all. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it felt good to realize that. It didn't... Um, so is it okay to just be sad? Yeah. For loss? I think so. Mm -hmm. I think I may be wondering... I think I, the, my question started to become whether I'm actually mourning my own ego, my, myself. What do you mean by ego? 
my sense of self, my sense of, and I, I keep coming back to just identity because I, I just realized it had so much to do with that. It had so much to do with, you know, I'm, an, I'm an immigrant. I grew up here as an immigrant. And so I think, um, yeah, just that it, it became about um, the sense of kind of losing an anchor and suddenly feeling afloat mm-hmm. was more what the sadness was than... Isn't that okay? Yeah, it's there. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So it feels to me like that's a lot of... Um, first of all, to realize just sadness in connection with loss, to really feel that. And that it, it's not a conceptual thing, right? So, and it's complex. So if we're sad losing someone, there are all kinds of reasons. We can just miss them. We can miss who they are to us. We can miss what they symbolize to us. We can also just miss their actual physical presence. And that we don't have to second-guess that. And we don't have to second-guess the complexity of it either. Or think that this, is, this part is okay, but that part is not okay. Or this is just about my ego, or this, is, this part is okay because it's actually missing my grandmother. And this part is about me, and it's not okay because it's about me. Because it's complex, Right? So it's not just grief that's complex, but it's all of the human feelings that we have in relationship to, to the other, to what we think of as the other, right? It's, but it's, it's more that our relationships to each other become um, organic to who we are. It's not like there's somebody out there who's your grandmother and there's you in here that's you and that there's some kind of separation and that your feelings are something in the middle that kind of connect you. But that there is an actual connection and connectedness that is there whether or not you recognize it. And so the, the, grief, and the, of the grief for losing someone has to do with all of that. It's, it, and it, and all, all of it is okay. It's not that this part is okay and this part is not, so I should, let, I should get over myself with that. But that it becomes an integrated whole and hopefully helps you to understand who you are even more. So, so that all experiences that we have have their, um, their wisdom and our, our task is not so much to um, to judge them or to th- or to think part of them is okay and part of, but really to to actually know what it has to teach us so that it's all okay what you feel you're entitled to your feelings whatever they are and however they arise and can we actually have those feelings without having to judge them or think it's not okay right so even and because I think sometimes when we talk about our ego, it's a, with a kind of 
um, penurious feeling or a, a kind of, oh, I should get rid of that. But we're integrated wholes, and there's nothing to get rid of. Everything is to be known and understood so that we, we stand under what is true, and it becomes an organic part of us rather than I'm just going to cut this part off and let it go, or I'm going to let that go. So if there's some sense of self, can we uh, relate to that with um, kindness and compassion rather than thinking we need to make it go away? It comes from, you know, Jesse's question about... um, Never mind. It, but it, it's it, we don't have to. We don't have to cut off parts of ourselves because we think they're not correct or not acceptable or not right. But actually, begin to gather all of the parts into one whole and love them. And those that need to go will go. And those that need to be developed and cultivated will grow and develop and cultivate through the love that you offer for yourself. And it's a, it's a, it's a Western thing, you know, that we're, we're acting and then we're judging how we're acting or we're thinking and then we're judging how we're thinking and we're saying, oh, we need to do, we can't do, we can't have that, this is not acceptable, that, it, it, that's all extra. This, this, um, there's this joyous activity of getting to know who we are fully and completely that allows what needs to fall away to fall away and what needs to grow to grow. So using your grandmother's passing as another opportunity for that would honor her deeply, right? To honor your your roots, and to, to, to really appreciate them and to know that you are a, con- a continuity of her life, right? is a beautiful thing. And so whatever you realize from that is a, an absolutely wonderful tribute to her and to your relationship with her. You're welcome, Deanna. So thank you for your three wonderful questions. And we, uh, together, recognize the goodness of what we do here together. And in recognizing that goodness, it's not so much um, congratulating ourselves as it is the acknowledgement of uh, the world needing people who are more peaceful, who are kinder, who are more wise, who are more compassionate, who live by some sense of ethics 
And so every step that we take towards fulfilling that for ourselves brightens the world, illuminates the world. And as we recognize that goodness that we have created here together tonight, we vow not to hold it for ourselves, but actually to scatter it across the world like a net that net that covers the whole world and and we offer the goodness to the benefit the welfare the happiness the well-being and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception and in this offering we wish that all beings be safe from harm be happy and peaceful, be healthy and strong, and live with ease. And if there is anyone in your life that you would like to um, specially invite into this space by your, the opening of your heart to share these wishes with them, you're welcome to either utter their names or to just bring a very vivid picture into your mind of this being and into your heart. And we share this merit and this goodness with these beings in particular, wishing that all who are homeless be housed, all who are hungry be fed, all who are sick be healed, all who are in grief be comforted. And so we join with all of our fellow beings in some joy and peace, wishing that all of our wishes are so. Get home safely. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.